Hello, and welcome to the Screen Skills Ireland podcast. I'm Christina Yee. And I'm Liam Gerrity. Christina is a writer, director, and animator. And Liam is a radio broadcaster and podcast producer. On today's show, we're talking to the screenwriter of Black 47 and standby Pierce Ryan. Pierce was one of the participants for the 2018 LA Writers' Room placements, where three lucky writers are selected to spend time in writers' rooms in LA and meet their showrunners. His latest feature, Black 47, is a brilliant revenge western set during the famine times. If you haven't seen it, it's on Netflix. What's your business here? Tell your men to get off the roof, I'll pay whatever's owed. Not a question of money. The tenancy is illegal. They moved in from the side of the road. Move back, please. Tell us a little bit about your career. How did you get into screenwriting? I was always just interested in writing. I was your typical only child who, you know, just has to make up lots of stories and the occasional imaginary friend. To kind of keep myself busy and occupied, I lived down in Tremor, the first part of my life, which is a small seaside town in Waterford. And that was in the 1970s. And there wasn't a whole lot to do kind of down there, you know, it's kind of there's two seasons, there's a winter and summer season, the winter season lasts about nine months of the year. But the summer season's fantastic, because literally for a kid, you kind of feel like De Niro in Casino, You're, you go down there and the amusements are on and it was kind of a big touristy town, you know, it was before, you know, people could, you know, get a cheap Ryanair flight to wherever, you know, so they would holiday, you know, in Ireland. And yeah, you were just as a kid, you're like, wow, I can play pitch and put whenever I want. And there was like a one screen cinema there called the Carousel Cinema. And that's where I kind of had my big sort of cinema going experience when I was about five years of age. It was the second film I'd ever seen. The first film I saw was Bedknobs and Broomsticks, if you remember that one. Uh, Angela Lansbury being tossed around in a flying bed. But then the second movie I saw was Superman 2. And I was on my own in the cinema because my dad knew the owner of the cinema it was a guy called Jack Piper and he's very friendly with him and they just gotten a new projector in so basically he invited dad and myself down they went up into the projection box and kind of just nerded out on, on this new projector and piece of machinery and I was down in the cinema on my own as a five-year-old watching Superman 2 and it blew my mind my <laughs> tiny mind and I came out of that screening and I remember into the foyer and they had like this so large urn uh, or vase or whatever. It's like something you'd see. It's preposterous looking. It's like something you'd see in Café on Seine or one of these places. You know, it was to give the place a bit of, I don't know, uh, an erotic, exotic even. Uh, not erotic. It wasn't erotic. <laughs> There's nothing erotic about the giant vase. Um, an a sense of the exotic with this huge vase. It wasn't hard to put a, you know, a sense of the exotic in, into Tremor at that time. But I remember thinking, I remember in my head, just thinking uh, as a five-year-old, wow, if I could just scrunch up my eyes tight enough, I bet I could get laser beams to come out of my eyes and I could blow up that vase. That was the impact <laughs> that that movie had on me. And so, yeah, I was just always fascinated with movies and, and stories ever since then. And then you jump forward kind of, you know, 15, 20 years. Like in school, always enjoyed English, had really good English teachers, was very, very lucky, very encouraging. You know, you'd always have to do your essay at the weekend. You get the essay titles on a Friday. And I just really enjoyed the challenge of trying to come up with a story that, you know, would somehow fit a particular essay title. Um, and then into college, kind of joined UCD Drama Sock and kind of got involved with that and kind of wrote some bits and pieces and play and stuff and put it on then yeah then it just kind of after that you're like okay well what what next how can i 
keep this going? Is it possible to have a career in this? Or is, you're not even thinking about that, actually. You're just kind of thinking, is it possible just to make some stuff? Do you know, a yeah. career will happen, I suppose, you know, if you're lucky enough to get, you know, make several things. And so, yeah, you just take it one step at a time and you're like, okay, let's try and make a short film, you know. And then when you make one, you're like, okay, let's try and make another one and another one and another one um, and see, you know, where that, where that leads. So, yeah, no great career plan. You're kind of taking it step by step. And, and, that, and that's a very long and meandering answer to your, to your question. Yeah. And, uh, and last year was the release of Black 47, mm-hmm. and that was your second feature film. Is that right? Yep. That's great. And it's had such amazing success. Congratulations. Thank you. On all, on all of that. So tell us a bit about that process. What was it like? And, you know, what was it like to have it sort of... This podcast goes on for about three hours. <laughs> if you want to know about the, the process of Black 47. It's so, because it's so unusual to have an independent film, like a small one, kind of really take off in the way that it did. Yes. Yeah. So that goes all the way back to 2007. And kind of my relationship with PJ Dillon, who's a fantastic director of photography. He's actually currently shooting a Marvel show for Disney Plus. Big, big time thing. But at that point, he was DOP on a couple of shorts and things that we've been involved with. And I got to know him and got friendly with him. And he basically approached me with this idea of a revenge western set during the famine and this kind of character of a conic ranger coming back and going on a trail of revenge and retribution, you know, against the people who were meant to look after his family but didn't. And he basically sort of gave that to me and said, look, can I, you know, flesh that out, come up with more characters and a kind of, you know, what happens in the story, you know. So that's what I did, wrote kind of a... A treatment for that but at the same time we were like yeah it would be kind of cool to maybe also have a short film as well and maybe take one or two of those scenes and explore that and see how how it works on the screen so we yeah we kind of wrote the two things at the same time i think it was the initial title of the short film was like the three killings of the ranger or something like that so that kind of gives you an idea of you know, we had a fairly good idea of the genre that we wanted to, to do. You know, it was real so Peckinpah kind of kind of Western. It gives um, it a real feeling of a fable as well. Yeah. A title like that. Yep. So, look, we were lucky enough to, to get to make that short with T.G. Cahar. And PJ shot it and directed it. And it looked amazing. And then at the same time, we had the treatment in with the Irish Film Board, what it was known as at the time. And they were, yeah, really, really positive about it. And so, yeah, then you kind of, there's years of trying to, I suppose, raise the money to make the movie because it was an expensive movie, Mm. especially, you know, for an Irish movie, anything over a couple of million is very, very hard to raise. Yeah. So that took a long time and took a lot of, you know, it's the dark arts of producing, you know. In in that time when you were waiting... Was there a lot of reworking of the material or had you kind of reached a point where you were happy with the script and then it's kind of... Do you know, like the way I remember it anyway, it came together quite quickly. There were, you know, we did, you know, several drafts, but they weren't kind of the drafts where you're sort of pulling out your toenails. They were really enjoyable because there was so much kind of material that you could just take from. You know, you just open up any book about the famine and you kind of... You know, these extraordinary kind of scenes are, are described by eyewitnesses in particular. And you're like, my God, if you got even a fraction of that on, on screen, it would be something else, you know. So you're, you know, it, it sounds terrible to say something to say about a famine, 
but you were kind of spoiled for choice in terms of, <laughs> you know, story and, and incidences and situations that were really memorable and, and kind of would stick in your head. So, yeah, I mean, it almost got made, I think, in 2012. And that was, again, there was just various reasons why it just didn't happen. And, yeah, then you kind of go literally, you know, it's 11 years. So it was January 2007 was the first emails I had with PJ about it. And then it premiered in Berlin in February 2018. I can't even remember. Yeah, 2018. Yeah. So that's... 11 years that's crazy wow yeah I, know. I, I was you know i was only five when i started on that project <laughs> you know. and tell us a little bit about your process are you a writer who outlines do you just dive in and start writing scenes how do you approach a, a feature length screenplay you do a lot of daydreaming that's basically what i think half of screenwriting is it is a lot of gazing out of a window and kind of uh giving yourself time to do that. And it isn't always easy, you know. Everyone's got various different pressures on, life stuff going mm. on, things you need to do. Um, but somehow you have to be able to create a bubble and a space for yourself that you can just close a door and say, okay, this is my time and just allow your head to wander. There's a really good video on YouTube, John Cleese talking about creativity. I think it's like a half hour lecture, but also you can find it where he condenses it down into about three minutes. But... It's really interesting just him talking about the unconscious and how you tap into the unconscious and how it's just like a, just a well of stuff. Like, you know, sometimes I do a bit of teaching as well in Pulse College and, and Griffith College about screenwriting. And I'm always banging on about this to the, to the students. You know, I'm kind of saying, okay, you know the difference between your conscious, your subconscious and your unconscious, right? So you're, you know, here's the, the example I give is this. So your conscious mind is, you know, you're on the phone to a friend, okay? Your subconscious mind is basically you're walking home as you're talking to your friend on the phone. So your subconscious is very good at doing like small repetitive tasks, all right? And where does your unconscious come into it? Well, your unconscious comes into it when, let's say, you turn around a corner and you hear a dog bark. But the dog barks in a really particular way. In fact, it, it barks just like the dog you had when you were a kid, right? And then suddenly, as you're continuing your conversation with your friend on the phone and as you're walking home, you're hit by all this, uh, like, emotion that you didn't even realize was there. But it's about, you know, thinking about that dog and, you know, how, how much you love that dog and what it smelled like when it came in from the garden, you know, and... All of these things, they're all coming out of your unconscious. That's a well of memory and emotion and stuff. And so a lot of screenwriting is trying to just free yourself up from distraction, turning off your phone, turn off the Wi-Fi, and allowing yourself to kind of let the brain sort of settle down from the day's business and slowly, a bit like meditation, that's what mm. John Cleese kind of describes this, it's very much like meditation. Just allowing these strange little ideas to pop up and kind of usually confluence is where a lot of ideas, you know, happen from. You know, so you get two or three different things banging off each other mm. and suddenly you get these weird combinations, you know. I think it's, there's a good video that Neil Gaiman does. He's asked about sort of creativity and, and where do ideas come from. And of course, you know, he's kind of said, look, you know, you never ask that of a writer. Because they'll give you really nasty, you know, they can give you really writerly, you know, answers back. <laughs> like, I think Harlan Ellison used to say, oh, I get it from, a, you know, an ideas of the month club. You know, oh, yeah, you know, you pay a few quid and every month they send you a couple of ideas. And people are like, really? He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But again, he just kind of stressed and emphasized the, you know, the idea about daydreaming. And he says, you know, you're there in your chair and, you know, you're thinking about werewolves. And... 
we all know, you know, how you become a werewolf, you know, it's a full moon and then, you know, if the light hits you and if you've been bitten by a werewolf, you know, and, you know, these are all these various things. And, but then you start to think about, well, what if, you know, what if a goldfish was bitten by a werewolf? <laughs> what would happen then? Or what would happen if it was a, what if a chair was bitten by a werewolf? And then you start to tease that out. And you kind of go, well, the story then would have to be maybe set in the winter because of the snow, because you have to be able to see like the the tracks that the chair makes as it walks (laughs) around. So, yeah, it's letting these, you know, weird and wonderful kind of little ideas pop out of nowhere and then exploring them. What's really important, where writer's block, I think, comes from a lot for, for a lot of people is that they try and force a story to go in a particular direction, which it doesn't want to go in. And so the key thing to kind of remember about a lot of storytelling, I think anyway, is to ask yourself, you know, where should this go? Mm. Not where do I want it to go or where do I, where did I presume it was going? But actually look at the situation, look at the characters and actually say, well, where should it go? You know, and it's amazing how that quickly frees up your kind of your writer's block and you suddenly, you know, the story starts to almost drive itself, you know, once you've kind of got that initial setup. And given, given like really what you're describing, kind of this need for space and time to think, what did you make of your experience in the LA writer's room for the, the trip out there? I imagine it's not quite exactly always conducive to that kind of working. Well, it's different because, you know, they're in a group, hmm. right? So, you know, you go into, let's say, for example, we were in the writer's room for Jupiter's Legacy. Um, so that's Stephen S. Tonight is the showrunner of that. I think that will be out on Netflix next year. So it's a Mark Miller. It's the first of the, you know, Netflix did a big deal with Mark Miller, all these graphic novels, the Miller World stuff. And this is going to be the first one of those. And it's got a really great pitch. If you haven't read the comic book, the comics are really good. The pitch is basically, it's about the messed up kids of superheroes. So you're like, okay, I get great. that. We're in, we're in. But yeah, so the, the environment there in the writer's room, eight people, you know, each of them have an episode. Each day is spent on one episode. They basically have a month from beginning to end to actually come up with a draft. So, you know, the first week they're kind of spitballing. Then they're actually outlining. In the room that we were in, all the walls were made of sort of glass. And they would actually write the entire episode on the wall in front of you. So the entire wall would just be the beats of the episode. So it was a really amazing way just to be able to overview kind of the episode. But yeah, so look, you know, at that point, there is a lot of spitballing. There's a lot of what if, what if this character does this? What if they do that? And it's just trying to accelerate the process, you know. But I have no doubt that every person in that room, and they're all extremely talented, when they're on their own writing, their process comes Mm. back to, again, Mm. sitting in the chair, looking at the window and trying. But again, highly pressurized environment. I mean, one of the showrunners we were talking with, they said basically writing over here, it's two things. It's quality scripts, but on time. Yeah. And there's no point if, you know, if you can write a quality script, but you take an extra couple of weeks, that's no use to them. So it's the combination of those two things. You know? And are you working on any uh, television ideas? I am. Can yeah. you We can had a meeting yesterday uh, and I can't them? tell you anything about it. So, <laughs> <laughs> but it will, we'll see. Yeah, but it's very um, exciting kind of stuff again it's a period what can i say about it uh a period fairly hopefully kick-ass drama and i can't say any more really about it great Uh, but we'll we'll see well i guess uh, even if you can't talk about it can you tell us like what kind of things and maybe things that you saw in the Mm. la writers rooms like that you would like to bring into your own 
room when you get to have something to run on your own? Or would you do it in the more Irish UK model of you would write the whole thing yourself? No, I think, well, for this particular project, there's like, there's another writer and another creator as well. So it's like basically it would be three of us. So yeah, I actually don't know. I don't know how, uh, whether there, yeah, there would be a room of sorts, you know what I mean? Like we would be helping each other, you know, figure out the episodes and make sure everybody's on the same page. But I'm pretty sure at a certain point then everybody will just go off and write their episodes and then come back. That's like in this, the other show that we we visited, which was What If, which was the Mike Kelly show, which is on Netflix now, the Rennie Zelliger show. They were at a different point. They were actually filming when we were there. So they were right in the middle of it. And that was very interesting compared to the more slightly relaxed atmosphere of Jupiter's legacy. Again, there's pressure obviously to, you know, you know, they're getting they need to start getting scripts together. But there's still there 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 was a feeling of, you know, well, you know, we still can throw things around and try and tease things out. Whereas with what if it was kind of like, you know, we 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 are writing scenes today that are going to be shot you know, tomorrow or the next day. So the pressure was kind of really, really on for them. So there wasn't so much, they would have a small meeting in the morning where somebody might be pitching some ideas, like, you know, that they've had. But really, for the most part of the day, it just seemed that they all went to their individual offices and were kind of busy at work. Yeah, I don't know if that answers your question. How would the room for this? I don't, the the honest answer is, I don't know what hopefully the room would be like for if you know this show happens but it's interesting just kind of looking at the different models like obviously in england it's very much you know a singular writer driven mm. whereas like jack torn doing you know dark materials or whatever you know and obviously in the american system it's much more a larger collaboration well and writers will often spend a lot of time on set as well mm. in the states that's right uh, well uh, the other show that we went to was the big bang theory which was extraordinary to kind of be on the floor. We were there for the rehearsals and then for the actual, you know, when they shot the show with an audience. And to see the writers there, it's just an enormous team of writers. And you got Chuck Lorre and, you know, other people there who were like the main kind of heads. And you would think like Chuck Lorre has so much money at this point, he could just send a hologram of himself, (laughs) to be honest with you, into work, you know. But the process, I mean, it was just, it was really impressive. It was just a constant listening to the audience and seeing what did that joke land because you know obviously with Big Bang Theory it's a particular thing it's like joke after joke after joke yeah and they literally they are breaking down if one joke doesn't work things stop mm. you know or if it doesn't quite if the whole audience doesn't go for it and then there's a huddle and literally you can just see them okay working out okay what, what's the additional lines and somebody runs over to the actors and of course the actors know their characters so well by this stage you know they don't even have to bat an eyelid really you know if you change their lines and literally they you know shoot the scene again new lines works better with the audience, boom, move on. And it took about three hours to film an episode because it's such a well-oiled kind of machine. Mm. It's, it's really impressive. Do you think that there's a... I mean, I can imagine, especially in a situation like that, it's quite obvious how being on set can really benefit the writing process. But do you think that that applies kind of more broadly to, to screenwriters especially, to be able to see the process and to understand how it's working? I think it would be really handy if there was slightly longer or any rehearsal period for a movie, hmm. which a screenwriter could be involved with, because you spend like 90% of, well, more of the development of a film, it's just going to be you playing all the roles. You're in your room 
with the script, acting it all out. And, you know, the last minute decision to have, you know, other actors play those roles in Black 47, for example, was probably the right <laughs> one. They went, oh, we got Jim Broadbent. Oh, okay, Jim Broadbent for his Oscar. You know? I've got a medal for table tennis, you know, come on. Um, but... Yeah, I think it would be really handy if there was, first of all, any kind of rehearsal period. Most films don't have a rehearsal period of any real length at all. And also just so you can hear other people reading your script aloud, even like mm. just having like, again, read throughs of scripts, because it's amazing how you can convince yourself that something sounds right that sounds, you know, natural or there's an energy to it, to a flow. And yet when actually you get a chance to be a little bit more subjective and have other people doing it, you kind of go, oh my God, this sounds like, you know, it sounds like a microwave wrote this. You know what I mean? It's so <laughs> clunky. It's just, you don't need half of those lines. Do you know what I mean? What they're doing with that one line is actually, you know, that's the kernel of the scene. That's all you need. But, you know, unfortunately, we, we don't, you know, get that opportunity too often, it seems. Were there any bits in, in Black 47 that just kind of surprised you with the way that they came out compared to how you had imagined it in your head? Sure. I mean, like, for for example, you know, Hugo did it in sort of a, a northern English accent, which I never did, <laughs> <laughs> but which worked really well for, you know, for his character. So there's like there's choices like that where you kind of go, oh, but then, of course, you're working with such highly skilled, amazing people. You know, of course, you know, you're you're that's the whole nature of the business is that collaboration you know and you know if you're working with people of that um, you know amazing standing and talent mm. you'd be a fool not to you know take on board you know what they you know their choices and decisions because they've thought about these things and here's the thing they've made way more movies than you'll ever make do you know what i mean so they are coming coming at it with you know a huge amount of experience too so yeah, I mean Jim Broadbent. I mean, for God's sake, are you going to question his choices? Do you know. <laughs> and before Black Forty Seven, had you written a lot of a lot of action? There's action in the short films, Jelly Baby, for example. You know about a couple that have a baby that won't stop crying and what they do about it. And there is a chase sequence in that, which I always had written that I wanted to be like the French Connection chase sequence, but with prams, um, because some prams are enormous. <laughs> They're like lorries. Do you know what I mean? So you can imagine from a Prams <laughs> point of view, you can actually kind of imitate that sequence a little bit with Prams. But yeah, it, it was action. Well, again, obviously then on Ranger, the short allowed us to, to kind of explore that mm. more. And that's where it kind of came up with the pig head um, scene. I've seen a lot of scripts where it can really entirely vary as well, like in action sequences, how much is actually described versus how much is kind of left to the mm. choreography when it when it comes to shooting it. What's your what's your take mm. on it? What's how mm. much do you uh, do you tend to flesh out action sequences in your scripts? It's yeah, that's interesting. I mean, if you look at someone like Tony Gilroy's scripts for like the Bourne Supremacy and things like you know the car chase in Moscow. It's unreal. Like, if you read the script for that, like, literally, it's like, so, like two, three word phrases and then dash, dash, dash. You know, he turns to the right, dash, dash, dash. Yeah. You know, bam, another car comes, bash, <laughs> da, dash, dash, dash. And he's got, it's all there on the page. And you're kind of going, you madman, Tony. <laughs> How the hell did you? So, I, yeah, you, you, you can try your best. You, I think 
if you if you compare it, let's say, with someone like Christopher Nolan, okay, Christopher Nolan, when he writes a car chase sequence, let's say in The Dark Knight, you know, when the Joker is chasing after him with the lorry sequence or whatever, going after Two Face, that's extremely controlled. If you read it on on the on the page, the way that he writes it, it's very much like this is what happens at this moment here, this scene. It's like a two three page, a two two line three line little scene description, and then it's like next. This is the next shot, and this is the next shot compared to Tony Gilroy's they just throw everything on the page mm. so I would probably go more for the Christopher Nolan style just because I I don't know it, I imagine Tony Gilroy must be just having a conversation with the director and, and stunt coordinators and stuff because otherwise it would just seem like an enormous waste of time to put all <laughs> of that on the page and give them to them and they're like okay yeah thanks very much and throw it over their shoulder and say no but actually this is the practicality of the mm. thing this is what we're going to be doing so I presume there's a, a, a you know a dialogue going on between the two of them. and obviously Christopher Nolan is in writing for himself so he is you know can be quite he can hold stuff back from the page yeah do you well, know what I mean? Because he knows he's going to be directing it. So, and it is, as you say, kind of a, it's a it's a matter of practicality as yeah. well. Like, what can you describe, and and what is necessary to describe? And and directors like it when you kind of don't overly describe mm. stuff. I kind of find because again, it allows them to bring their skill set in and their talents, you know, to to combine with the script. One of the things I really enjoyed in Black Forty Seven was the the attention to the timing between gunshots fired. With just like at that time period, obviously reloading a musket, it takes takes Ages. a certain amount of time. And yeah. usually, yeah, it would misfire and, you know, the gunpowder would be wet and all that kind of stuff. And it really yeah. adds to the tension as well. Yeah, it does. Like, yeah, because you can have two people with guns and neither gun can go off. Yeah. <laughs> do, do, do you know? And they're like, oh, we're going to have to do this the old fashioned way. I see. Okay. That about wraps things up for today. If you want to find out more about the training and initiatives run by Screen Skills Ireland, just visit screenskillsireland.ie. I've been Liam Garrity. I've been Christina Yee. Thanks for listening. <laughs>